Okay, we're back at Solidarity Hall. This is Elias Krim after a bit of an intermission. Um, in fact, in the, in the meanwhile, my co-pilot, Pete Davis, is so ridiculously busy, uh, you know, getting married, writing a book. What else can you invent for yourself and launching a project? So anyway, he wishes us well as we are talking to Scott Beauchamp. And I better ask if I'm uh, correctly pronouncing your last name. Uh, that's how I say it. I don't know if it's correct. Okay, but, uh, that's fine. Yeah. <laughs> but I got to do some sort of French thing. Oh, yeah, that's fine. Great. Hey, great to connect with you. And, you know, I thought I would begin by pointing out that I can't remember exactly how I came across your writing. But one striking thing about it is that it could have been any one of an amazing range of places. I mean, in other words, it could have been the Washington Examiner but it could also have been the baffler. It could have been new criterion, but it could also have been plow quarterly. So I think listeners should try to wrap their heads around that as a beginning. (laughs) (laughs) And um, do do you have any, you know, do you have any explanations for this? Uh, Well, I I don't know if I have an explanation necessarily, (laughs) but I, I'll say that, I like to think that, um, you know, everyone's strength is sort of also their weakness and, mm-hmm. um, uh, for better or worse, I, I'm just kind of a generalist, um, mm-hmm. in a misfit. And I don't feel like I really, uh, perfectly fit into, uh, uh I, I, I'm, I'm constantly changing and I'm constantly sort of discovering new things about how I see the world and how I experience the world. And uh, I, I'm just not very, um, uh, I don't hold fast to any sort of ideology. So no. No, um, maybe, th- that's my strength and my weakness, I think. No, right. That's great. I mean, is it too much? Is it over the top to say you are attempting the old ideal of the man of letters? I suppose that's what I'm doing. Yeah, it sounds rather grand when you say it, but I, oh, I guess that's what it is. Beautiful. You are part of a dying breed. I'm simpatico with this whole idea. Um, it's a job that needs doing. It's a, it's a tricky business, though, because um, at the end of your new book, which we're about to talk about, you make the point that you are hoping you have avoided um, – you know, landing in some kind of a political box. You're, you're really not very interested in doing that. And so since you're inspired by other things, this leads you to um, all sorts of different publications, right? Yeah, I, I, I hope so. Um, and, well, something that I, I think that I really try to studiously avoid making my my most recent book about um, uh, sort of hold fast to, to sort of one political lens, especially a very current one. Um, and, and I, and I think hopefully um, I approach all the subjects that I write about with that same kind of attitude. Um, yep. I don't always succeed, but, but that's, that's my goal at least. Yep. Yep. You know, I'll mention just briefly as a quick um very selective survey of subjects that you've written about all very interestingly. This is all just totally right down my alley. You know, how about Sinofuturism, Simone Weil, police militarization, Ezra Pound, 
David Jones, The Grateful Dead, Coco, Kobo Abe, and Homeric Poetry. Yeah, no, that's, uh, <laughs> that's a great beat. That's a great beat to be on, you know? <laughs> yeah, well, you know, I think one of the things about, about sort of being a generalist is that um, uh, I can write about whatever interests me. And um, yep. all those all those topics are all very interesting. Should we allow you to identify yourself a little bit uh, geographically, uh, biographically? Sure. sure, yeah. So um, uh, I'm coming to you from Bath, Maine, where uh, I've made my home for the past five years um, after living in um, Brooklyn for a while. Mm-hmm. Um, and before that, I was an infantryman in the United States Army. I uh, was deployed to Iraq twice. Mm-hmm. And before that, I was at the University of Missouri, Columbia. Hmm. Um, did not graduate. Um, I actually dropped out to join the Army. Uh-huh. Uh, but had, had, a, had a pretty good time there. Um, and... Um, and that's that's basically me in a nutshell. Married, one beautiful, one-year-old daughter. Cool. Yeah. Did you grow up in a bookish family? Um, I have to be careful how I answer this in, in case they, huh. they listen. Well, uh, the answer is hell no. <laughs> yeah. Well, I would say I would say no. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they might disagree because oh. I, so I, I think my family is really so my my dad's an engineer, pretty adamant atheist. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's very much a part of his identity. I see. My mom is a little bit new agey, and I mean they they my mom reads a lot. She reads mostly like murder mysteries, <laughs> and my and my dad reads science. And so there's there was no there was there were a lot of books, but I don't think there was a very like, you know, rich tradition of the humanities or anything like that. So, I see. Yeah. Interesting. Well, let me ask you this question as a way of kind of moving toward the new book. You know, um, I'll offer a brief uh, personal anecdote. I am um, an old enough dude, older boomer dude, that part of my high school experience was knowing, or at least I, I, I thought it was part of my experience, um, knowing about various battles in World War II. We had to know about, I mean, had to. My sense was that I needed to know about what happened in the European theater. I certainly needed to know about the Pacific and all the dramatic things that went on there. And the reason was because my friends, at least a few of them, had heard these stories from uh, usually their dads, maybe their granddads, but it was some sort of a male thing to be conversant about uh, the military and in particular the experience in World War II. This is a little before Vietnam, um, but it's, it's, it was this cultural thing, you know, because it was universal. Every family had some aspect of the story. <clears throat> and, um, you know, it framed my thinking about, the world and what it meant to be an adult. To be an adult meant you understood what happened in World War II and the various lessons and reflections on that. And that's just part of the whole picture, right? 
So give, give me your, do you have a version of that? Yeah, well, that, it's interesting that you, that that was your experience, because I think that, um, I, I mean, I, I think you'd agree that it's changed dramatically. Sure. Um, I, I would say, so my experience is, um, I come from, I guess you would say a military family. It's a lot of people do, you know, oh, you know a lot yeah. of, sure. <laughs> most family members, uh, most people have a family member who fought in World War Two or World War One. Yep. Um, and, and so that was, that was sort of, um, uh, honored and, 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 and praised within my family. Mm -hmm. Um, but, and I, and I assumed, I think growing up that that was true for, um, everyone else, everyone else had a a, a grandpa who fought, um, in World War II, possibly a dad who fought in Vietnam. Um, and then it was only, um, upon, being released into the wider world that I realized that there's a real cultural bifurcation mm-hmm. um, between people who um, would sort of even be aware of that tradition and be cognizant of its importance. Yeah. or think it's, it's important to the family um, and people who don't care at all, or if there's any, um, if they do, it's, it's sort of to, you know, re- re- reject those experiences or something. Um, mm-hmm. I don't, I don't think I realized, um, the, how, how dramatic the, um, the divide was until honestly, until I, I, I moved to New York. Um, hmm. and so I, so I think, I think your experiences still exist, you know, somewhat altered within a segment of America. Um, yeah but it seems, it seems more um, culturally determined or there seems less to be less of a consensus that, yep. Yep. you know, this is something you need to know about. This is important. I mean, there's so many people who, um, you know, when you think about politics, the state of the military, um, whether you've been critical of it or, or not, almost like it, it, it's very often when I'm having political conversations with people, it just won't even come up, yep. which is kind of baffling. Um, no matter what your opinion might be to, to sort yep. of not have an opinion or to not know enough to have an opinion mm-hmm. is, is very strange to me at least. Yeah. Yeah. You say that in a way you wound up in the army because you wanted a kind of a temporal coherence, you know, I, I mean, are, are you talking about, you just wanted to sort of understand these great themes of, history and destiny and try to figure out what they might have to do with you in some way. What, what exactly were you getting at there? Yeah, I think that was a part of it. And, and so we're, we're sort of segueing into the, how my book is structured, right? So it's, yeah. it begins with the question, the questions I should say that, that I was asked after I returned from the army and returned from certain deployments. Um, and I didn't really know how to answer them. And one of the questions was, why did you join the army? Cause uh, where I'm from in Missouri, it just wouldn't ever be asked. It seemed pretty right. obvious, you know, there's a war, you're a man, you join the army. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't really need asking. Um, but then later on when I was out of the army and, and living on the East coast, it was asked quite often. And it was usually asked not because people were actually curious about my experiences or motivations, yeah. Um, but it was um, it was more of a um, a challenge, I guess. Yes. 
Um, yes. Who are you? you do you be- do you belong here? What am I doing talking to you? <laughs> are, you are you like you know not yeah. not enough like me? Um, yeah. yeah. And and so I really I don't think I was entirely conscious of my own motivations for joining until um, until I was asked those questions. So they they actually is is sort of aggressive as they could be sometimes. They were they were kind of a blessing um, for me personally. Mm-hmm. As, a, as an impetus to, to sort through um, my experiences in a deeper way. And so when I'm thinking about why I joined the military, it didn't seem at all that obvious uh, a choice for me personally. Um, I, especially at the time, I, uh, my early 20s, which actually I should say was, was, was kind of old for joining at the time. I was 21 years old when I was in basic training, and people in basic training called me old man Bochamp. Huh. Um, because they were teenagers, yeah. you know, and I wasn't a teenager. So, I see. Um, yeah. And, and so I think, but I think at the time, um, as, as much as I enjoyed certain aspects of college, um, it, it overall, the experience really let me down. Mm-hmm. Um, it seemed like people weren't, serious enough about why they were there. Um, and I think I was looking for something that at least the school that I went to, maybe other schools are different. It, it wasn't designed to give me, um, which I wouldn't necessarily say was meaning, but it would be like the tools to um, live the kind of life or, or, or to, to think in a certain way where I could discover meaning or find it Yep. Mm-hmm. for myself. And, um, I guess what I was hoping for was something more like a monastic experience, mm-hmm. um, something very simple and um, very ascetic. Uh, I don't know. I imagine, you know, and, and somewhat bohemian too, I guess, like, right. Like people in dingy clothes arguing about books. That wasn't my experience at all. Mm-hmm. It was mostly people going to parties and plotting out um, how they would, find a if not a high paying at least a stable career uh, so it was all really a little bit disenchanting for me and i felt when you talk about temporal placement um i felt disconnected i guess from um any sort of larger sense of coherency of life or like a unified coherency of, of a life is it's experienced And I felt like that I needed to devote myself, myself to something that was, that was larger than my, the minutia of my personal experiences, but also included those. Um, And, and it seemed, it seemed like an an obvious choice to join the army. And I was also, you know, sort of an aspiring writer at the time. I've always wanted to write. Mm -hmm. And I thought, of course, these would, um, this would give me the experiences, yeah. experiences that I could write about. Um, kind of a Hemingway-esque thing going on here, right? Yeah, as, as cliche <laughs> as it sounds. Um, but, you know, I was 21. Right. Um, that's, that's sort of, yeah, the, the template that I was trying to follow. The war correspondent. Yep. Um, it, there, there's so much interesting stuff in the book because um, the way in which you interweave your different realizations, uh, you know, out there uh, in country and everything with other reading that 
And we better say the title of the book. It's called Did You Kill Anyone? Published by Zero Books, which is a wonderful publisher, new to me. But your chapter titles are things like boredom, ritual, community, hierarchy, smoking, interestingly, tradition, and honor. And then uh, around those, you you weave some really uh, interesting stuff. But the thing I wanted to ask was, um, at, at what point did you begin to realize that you had joined maybe a different army, sort of historically speaking, a different military than the the sort of you know grand one that we might have read about uh, in books and you know in our imaginations? If you see what I'm getting at there, right? No, I, I understand. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I think that. If I had to guess, I'd say probably the expectations that young men have joining any military and going to war never match up to the reality. Mm-hmm. Um, I feel pretty confident in saying that. Mm-hmm. But um, I think for me, in the um, the particular experience that I was looking for, I mean, it, you could kind of tell right away, um, even the conditions under which we were fighting the war itself, which I had opposed in college. Um, I had opposed the invasion of Iraq. I had, I went from like, you know, one year protesting the war the next year deploying. Um, So I feel like there were a lot of red flags. Um, But I mean, as far as, as far as it being the kind of experience that, that um, you would, I mean, the, you know, this, this, the military that we have now, and, I, and again, I, I don't want to like this sort of political framework isn't, isn't in my book, but mm-hmm. I would say that the kind of military we have now isn't necessarily built to fight and win wars. I mean, it's built to yep. um, make mm-hmm. money for certain people. Right. So um, yep. I think there's a, probably a big difference between, um, you know, the battle of Thermopylae and the invasion of Baghdad, even more so than just, than just uh, the kind of um, technology that's used. Even, even um, the reasons for going to war and, and, and the way the military is built and the way it's constructed and who it actually serves. Mm -hmm. So, and, and, and all that became pretty, pretty obvious fairly quickly on, but it also, I think didn't, it, it didn't really affect my day-to-day experiences as much as someone might think who, who hadn't also served. Um, it's really difficult as much as, as, as our military has tried to, to really whitewash the experience of combat. Yeah. Um, it's really difficult to anesthetize it. It's really difficult to control it. I mean, everyone sort of knows the famous cliche Clausewitz phrase, the fog of war. Yeah. Um, but it's true. If, if, if there isn't, if there isn't confusion and if there isn't some element of, um, that you can't control, I would hesitate to even call it combat. Hmm. Um, it's something else, you hmm. know? Wow. Um, so I think that's, it's sort of vital to the experience and, 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 and within that, um, that's sort of, there's a very, strange 
primal clonic energy that um, you learn a lot from mm-hmm. good things and bad things. And, and you have um, sort of holding the world together, this kind of unit cohesion, right? The, the, you make the point that when you're up in the guard tower, the, the reason you can't float off or, you know, have a short nap is because one of your friends might get killed. Yeah, so that's, that's what I mean by the, the sort of political, the larger political context yeah. melting away within the actual yeah. experience itself yeah. is this is what holds know, together, right? This is the way. Right. Right. You're, you're not in the guard tower thinking, man, I can't believe, you know, I'm Raytheon is making so much money off of the, <laughs> right, <laughs> like, right. Like, that's not what you're thinking. You're thinking, Oh, I better um, stay awake because yep. you know, my, my okay, buddies yeah. are, are going to leave in an hour on a patrol. And if I don't watch this crossroad, someone could yeah. place an IED there. Yeah. Um, so there's there's a lot of purpose behind it, and 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 I think this goes back to what I was saying about the things you learn and this kind of strange um, primordial soup that that you don't really learn in the civilian world, or you don't you don't necessarily see it because I think that um, in a lot of ways our society has structured itself in such a way to to minimize. Um, really grand or deep experiences mm-hmm. or eliminate them altogether, um, whether good or bad, you know, there's, there's, there's this, I think there's this um, desire to keep a sort of even keeled and, and consuming and buying things and not getting too sad or too happy, you know, and just, but with, right. you know, but right. within these extremes right. there, there, <clears throat> there's a lot to learn. I mean, that's the, that's sort of the full, the full scale mm-hmm. of, of the human experience. Mm-hmm. And so there was a lot, there were a lot of these things that I experienced there that I didn't experience back home that I counterintuitive, counterintuitively missed. Um, and I didn't expect to, I mean, like in the moment I didn't expect like, wow, I'm really bored in this guard tower. You know what? I bet 10 years from now, I'm really going to miss being this bored. <laughs> um, but you know, I did. Um, and because within something like that, that you really only, experience when there's a lot on the line. So if I fall asleep in the guard tower, one of my, someone I know might die. Um, And at the same time, this is not a very pleasant experience for me. You sort of move beyond the surface of it. Mm-hmm. And in 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 it's difficult to write about because in a lot of ways you sort of move beyond language also. And you are formed within the crucible of these experiences or in um you only really see what they meant um when you come back to sort of you know when you're shopping at a strip mall 10 years later and 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 you're you're bored in a completely different way you're bored without purpose yeah and you realize, oh, okay, well, that kind of boredom that I experienced was of a totally different order than the kind of boredom I experienced, you know, flipping through television channels back at home. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, I take it, you mentioned in the book um, some rituals, uh, particularly in, in basic training, you know, the, the infantry song and the inf- infantryman creed and all that. And I wonder if you kind of saw that in 
maybe two ways. Um, in one way, you, I, as I recall, you describe it as really being kind of affecting. You know, you you suddenly realize the way the unit was really being created here uh, at, the, at the end when you run to the top of the hill and so on. Um, and at the same time, I wonder, you know, um, d- did you also kind of feel kind of an irony about uh, what the ritual was for? But but before you get to the second point, maybe maybe about ritual. Tell tell me what you discovered about ritual when you were at that point. Well, I, I think that the scene you're describing is is the very end of um, basic training, mm-hmm. um, where we go on our last road march. We've done this sort of week long field exercise. We go on our last road march and it's up something they call the stairway to heaven in, in Fort Benning, Georgia. And um, it's a night march and it, it, it takes most of the night to get there. And then you get to the top and there's, there's a ceremony with, hmm. you know, tiki torches and something they call infantryman's grog, which I think is just wine punch and Sprite. Um, and you stand in formation and, and there's speeches and, and, you know, you're told you are, an infantryman now you're you're joining this um group that sort of spans time and 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 you belong to this brotherhood that exists mm-hmm. throughout history now mm-hmm. not just within your own individual units but with within the larger units and the history yeah. of the unit within in in, in in the army itself and in every army right yeah. um so i mean are you aware of the irony of so there's yeah i mean i i think that there is i don't think everyone's aware of it but i think that yeah and there is a sense of um at least i had kind of a sense that um this was a very i mean it was effective don't get me wrong like i i was in the moment mm-hmm. for sure you describe it that way yeah yeah and it was it was it's very i mean you're you feel a culmination in the sense of mm-hmm. um achievement you know you've you've done all these really difficult tasks and you know you've lived with these people for in my case three months or so um and so you you really um you feel like it needs to be acknowledged in some way more than um you know just oh great good job guys you can you're an infantryman now you know like you almost you almost desire that ritual and i really felt that and i think yeah. that desire sort yeah. of outweighed my double vision of of oh isn't it ironic that it's <clears> sort <throat> of the dynamics of this event right of the ritual itself yeah are being put to 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 this particular use but i think that um what was so unique about it for me, at least, um, again, coming from a family in a tradition, I didn't, you know, I didn't grow up going to church. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't have rituals in my life was the sort of non literalness of it. I mean, the event itself uh-huh. felt like a giant metaphor Yeah, and yeah. it felt like the only way that we could really sort of apprehend or express this almost ineffable, sense of um what we just accomplished together and what we were now and so like there was this line drawn in the sand but you could only really get there by 
joining together communally and creating creating a kind of uh, a living out or enacting a metaphor for what had just happened. Hmm. Um, uh-huh. and, and to me, it stood in stark contrast with what I think is sort of the over literalization of our, of our culture. Um, it was a, a, a far cry from, you know, being handed a piece of paper by a human resources person yeah. and saying, sign here, congratulations, no, right. no. you're a, um, and yeah, so I think there was a sense of the double vision that you talked about of, of seeing it sort of ironically, but at the same time, um, I think, you know, the human soul feeds off of those experiences and yep. needs, it needs those experiences. So it was yep. really difficult. I mean, I should say it was really easy to put aside my cynicism in the moment and just be fully present. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, it's interesting that I forget if this is the exact moment where you, you go on this theme, but the notion of ritual, um, somehow this, this was tied up with your reading of Ezra Pound, who refers often to Confucius and the concept of Li, ritual, and sort of restoring the world to order. So, so that you, you saw there was sort of cosmic implications here, right? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's, that's sort of what I mean by the metaphor. I think yeah. the, the way Pound understands Confucius using the word Li is sort of like, there's this order that's it's there it's manifest but at the same time it's also kind of occluded a little bit mm-hmm. um and and we can interact with it but only sort of like at a at a, at a distance um there's almost something heideggerian in that right like like you know the object is sort of hidden and i think the order itself is also manifest but but hidden mm-hmm. and we can only really engage with that order or, or not even engage with it but just recognize it and honor it um, in a, in a sort of a, in, in a ritualistic way. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, you know, because the order is so vast that any, any, I think any, any time we try to pin it down and say, okay, this is it. You're wrong because it's always more than that. Right. Because yep. it includes you. It includes you. It includes your gestures. It includes language. It's bigger than all that. Mm-hmm. So you have to gesture at it obliquely. Um, and I think that's what ritual is. I think mean, that's what ritual does. Hmm. Yeah, yeah, that's good. That's good. One of your chapters, um, it, it's, I, I can't pass up having you just say a couple of words on the chapter on smoking because it was so unexpected and so interesting. It was such a great riff you kind of went off on there. Um, so maybe you could recap that a little bit just to tantalize the prospective reader. Yeah, so I, that was probably my favorite chapter to write. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. and I, I had and I, no I, idea where you were going to this, but I just thought, <laughs> wow, this is a this is terrific. I'm glad you liked it. I, I, yeah, I wanted to put it right in the middle of the book as sort yep. of a, yep. a break between these. You know, I'm yep. dealing with these kind of heavy themes beforehand and afterwards, and they're not that heavy, but you know, they they have these kind of heavy titles. Yeah, know, yeah. hierarchy and <clears throat> ritual, and you know, um, and so I wanted something to sort of break it up a little bit. And which I think is exactly what smoking does. Um, it, it's, it's a way to demarcate time. And um, I should say that I am an ex-smoker. I no longer uh-huh. smoke. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but, uh, but I did smoke when I was in, in the Army. 
Yeah, used up your quota there, probably. You know. Yeah, yeah, I'd say I, I smoked enough there for uh, I don't need to smoke again. Um, <laughs> but um, cigarettes are fascinating. Tobacco is fascinating. I mean, tobacco is one of um, uh, uh, this has been written about uh, quite quite a bit, but. Europeans, of course, would would say this, but it's it's mm-hmm. one of the only things that the new world has has brought to you know to yeah. to, to old world culture, right? Is, right. This, <clears throat> is tobacco, and um, so the way that I would smoke in in when I was in the military would would be a way. I felt like I, I the meal wasn't over. You eat a meal, you smoke a cigarette. You yeah. go on a mission, you smoke a cigarette. It's sort of like finally recapping everything. Um, and, it, and, it, and it moved in two ways at once, like the, the, the act of smoking. So in, in one sense, it, it, it helps you stand aloof from whatever's happening, right? Hmm. Hmm. Um, I, think, I think one of the, um, one of the examples I use is you know, people who are about to be executed smoking a cigarette. So it's, they yeah. get that, that sort of a pocket, uh, you know, it's like a pocket eternity before your death that you mm-hmm. get to stand aloof from yourself and, and, and it's like your last moment of freedom, but at the same time, it, it, it it's a, it's a, it's an upper, right? You know, nicotine is, is mm-hmm. it energizes you. It, it quickens your heart and it sort of brings you into the moment too. Um, so if you really want to, you know, people really want to focus or something, you know, light a cigarette. Um, and it was just, it was, it was interesting to me how, um, and my, you know, half of my family smokes um, mm-hmm. and I grew up around smokers Mm-hmm. And um, it always interested me, and it, it, as being something that you know, it, it moves, it moves you, it moves the body in two directions at once into the into the act, whatever you're whatever you're performing, it helps you concentrate, helps focus, hmm. helps you stand aloof from it. But also culturally, in a larger sense, um, smoking is both lowbrow and highbrow. Yeah, it's a working class thing. It's also a um, a, a thing for uh you know those highbrow artists smoke mm-hmm. um, mm-hmm. um it, it's something that's seen as um r- relating to death um but also relating to sex and also relating yeah. to consumption and so it yeah. it, it just it mm-hmm. it just blends all these things together and um, and it was honestly a, a big part of, of my experience um, in combat. I mean, I don't think any any um, any rendering of, of of my experiences would be complete without mentioning smoking. <laughs> Fascinating. That was great stuff. You did some wonderful research on that, trying trying to identify these various characters uh, in in the history or the literature of smoking. Fascinating stuff. You know, um, you. I was delighted that you were on to David Jones. Um, I just wondered what you know. How do you see him? I I have to admit I have tried to read Anathemata, and I'm going to keep reading it. And that, that's a wonderful poem. Mm-hmm. I've never really read in parenthesis, um, but I just wondered. You know, what what does Jones' work uh, mean to you, or what has it come to mean to you? I didn't really discover Jones until um, until I was out of the army, I believe, mm-hmm. um, or definitely not deployed anymore. Um, 
And so I'm sort of new to him. And I, and I, I understand what you mean by trying to read him. He is very difficult to read. Yeah. And not even in the sense that like Ezra Pound is difficult where, you know, you, you need sort of a guidebook to all those illusions and, and his references. Mm-hmm. You need that with, with David Jones also, but you also like have to be able to like read in a Welsh accent. And, yeah. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, it's really strange. Yeah. <laughs> And but, so for, for me, I mean, I'm, I'm with you. I'm still, um, you know, I've been reading him for years now and I'm still like, I yeah. feel like I only get half of what he's saying, if that, mm-hmm. um, but what I do understand and when I, when I do, when I do get him, when I do make that connection, he's just a, a fantastic poet. Yeah. Um, and a wonderful essayist. Um, mm-hmm. The artist in his epoch is a wonderful collection of essays. Um, but we're, what Jones means to me, um, I would say is, is the two biggest things that I've gotten from him. Um, one, and this is something that I try to keep in mind when writing my own book is that there's so much to say, there's so much more to say about war than thumbs up, thumbs down. Mm-hmm. Um, and so often, and it's really difficult because you, you do have to have, um, you know, you, there has to be an element of moral judgment um, to, to writing about war. I mean, there just has to be, right? Mm-hmm. But to make it only that or to have that um, sort of, um, you know, everything else is, is sort of dried out by it really does a disservice to the um, depth of the experience mm-hmm. and the variety within the experience itself. And so his book in parentheses, like you said, it's, it's, it's about roughly, I mean, loosely based on his, his experiences in World War One. Mm-hmm. And Jones was one of those rare British World War One poets who was not an officer. Um, mm. So he didn't have much time to write poetry during the war. He uh-huh. uh, wrote, wrote it afterwards. And he was in the trenches, not just telling people what to do, but, um, being told what to do and emptying, uh, you know, buckets of feces and, you know, like mm-hmm. burning things. And, and so those experiences at, to me as an, as an enlisted infantryman were, you know, they resonated with me. It's a, it's a different experience of the blue collar war versus the white collar war. Yeah. <laughs> and um, <clears throat> so, so that appeals to me, but it's hard to tell. I mean, you can, under, you know, from his writing um, that, many of the experiences are terrible. Oh yeah. That war is awful. Um, but there's more to it than that. I mean, he wasn't trying to write a pro war or anti-war book. Right. He was trying to write a book about war. Mm-hmm. Um, because, and I, and I will have to sort of plagiarize myself here. When I say this, I wrote an, uh, an essay for the Washington Examiner recently about David Jones and, and how he helps us understand war, but war is so vast that it's, it's everything you think you know about it. And then more, it's always more than what you think you know about it. Mm-hmm. And David Jones does a great job of um, making that fact come to life. You feel that <clears throat> war is so vast that these people aren't going to, I mean, they're suffering there. There's, there's, squalor but they're not really there to understand it per se but just to try to maintain some semblance of their own humanity yeah 
to my mind, that seems like maybe just the experience of living in the world sort of writ small. The world is always more than you think it is. Mm-hmm. It's difficult to understand that there are, there is a lot of squalor and pain and suffering and you're, just, you know, people are just trying to maintain some semblance of humanity within it, just yeah. trying to, 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 to remain human. Um, so, so I think that was a really good lesson as someone who wants to write about or um, to take away from David Jones. Yeah. Your, your last chapter um, before the postscript is on honor. And, you know, I was going to ask you a kind of a general question about um, your, your sense of the military as a very maybe diminished option for young men in a society that is just riddled with a kind of enemy and lack of any purpose, no institutions, no, no paths. Um, you know, I guess for young people in general, but certainly there's no, there's no heroic quest <laughs> you can sign up for. Um, and so I wondered, you know, uh, was it was it while you were deployed or after that that you began to think about these themes of uh, honor and and uh, what that ought to look like if it could somehow be embodied at this moment in American history? I would say that I definitely these are things I definitely thought about afterwards. Um, mm-hmm. I think I think in in the moment you're you're too um, subsumed in it all to really yeah. yeah. To, to, but I, but I think at the same time, you know, the experiences are so vivid, they stay with you. Mm-hmm. Um, so they're there for you to think about later. Um, and as far as honor goes, I think that was probably the most difficult chapter for me to write. Um, because, uh, you know, the notion of honor, I mean, you know, I have, I have friends of every ideological stripe, um, all over the political spectrum. Mm-hmm. And, you know, this, the understanding, how they understand the word itself, it's, it's almost like it, it's, they're speaking a different language. Mm-hmm. Um, there's, it's really, it was really difficult to pin down a definition of honor and everyone thinks they know what it means. Mm-hmm. And for me, what it ended up meaning most of all was um, a sense of integrity mm-hmm. um, to your, um, deepest held beliefs i'd say um and, and staying true to those no matter what i know there's sort of like a i don't know kantian categorical imperative uh to it all but but that's in a way that's the sort of what it is um and without it, it it felt like a current right like a current of electricity that really lights up the circuit of all the things that you believe and all the things that animate you and without it it, 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 it seemed like you, you would, at the first opportunity, you'd sort of betray yourself to these sort of like lesser concerns, whether it be fear or opportunity or whatever. Mm-hmm. And so for me, that's, that's what it ended up meaning. And, and I think, and I hope that that's a definition that would appeal to a variety of different people who are living a variety of different lives. And, and mm-hmm. um, yeah. You, you make a, um, a comment that <clears throat> you see it as part of hospitality culture, which I thought was a striking idea. I, 
what exactly did you mean by that? Well, I think I think what I meant was, and and it's a book a, a book like this. There, it's kind of difficult to talk about, right? Because it's sort of like a snapshot of <laughs> of how I felt when I, I was writing that it. Day. Yes, right. And and <laughs> you know, it's so it was you know, and I feel like that that's you know, for better or worse, that's that's what it is. So I have to think about what I was thinking about when I was remembering my experiences then well, you know, but, but I, I think that you're going to the odyssey or something you know i i thought well, i mean i think that's what it is right like yeah. i think i think i think that's what it is and i think that's what um a lot of people would associate with honor yeah um you, some I mean, oftentimes <clears throat> negatively right is this sense that um the kind of like primitive system for um to keep to keep to keep anarchy at bay, uh, what we do when we don't have laws or something, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, but but I, I think it's a little bit more than that. Um, I think it has a kind of a richer meaning than that, because it's it's uh, laws are about obeying them or not obeying them. But honor is about an existential commitment to a certain um, orientation to the world. And so when you're honoring, when it's part of your honor system uh, to show hospitality to the stranger. Which you know, in 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 most, I would say, traditional honor systems throughout the world, it is, mm-hmm. right? Um, I think what that means is that you are. It, it's it's sort of like I think it's more powerful than than any sort of legal system. Like you know, when, when someone knocks on your door, you you can't kill them. <laughs> yeah, um, and I think it's it's you know when you when you're even if you don't feel in the moment like oh, I, I just, you know I, I i what is this person want i don't want to make them tea and set them down and have to talk even if you don't feel like in the moment it's it matters much less than it's important to you yeah. to be yeah. a person who you know gives the other person a chance to to also be a person hmm. yeah that's good that's good there's much to unpack there that's un- unpack there that's great that is a great thought you know, um, um, I, I love the the range of your uh, cultural and literary interest, and uh, you you also do this wonderful thing. We should alert the readers. You um, bring up <clears throat> all sorts of interesting writers, some not so well known that um, probably should be better known. And one of them, the revelation to me, was um, Byung Chul Han, the uh, philosopher. Um, the author of the Burnout Society. I never come across this guy. <clears throat> and I thought I would just read back a, a couple sentences from one of your quotes because, sure, uh, you know, it made me immediately want to run out and get the book. Uh, he says in the Burnout Society, <clears throat> we owe the cultural achievements of humanity, which include philosophy, to deep contemplative action. Culture presumes an environment in which deep attention is possible. Increasingly, such immersive reflection is being displaced by an entirely different form of attention, hyper-attention. And then he goes on, and this is a sort of a familiar theme in a way for most of us. You know, um, um, we, you and I are aware of all sorts of people that are kind of out there talking about rescuing 
Western civilization and other such uh, extraordinary ideas <clears throat> for some of which you can get funding, I guess, right? <laughs> right, yeah. <laughs> Hopefully you'll get funding. Um, but what about deep contemplative action? What are your, what are your thoughts on our, our program for getting that back? Well, first of all, let me say that I'm so glad that you <laughs> found Byung-Chul Han through me because I think he's someone that um, huh. more people need to read. He's, okay. he's just a fantastic uh, philosopher. Great. Like great yeah, yeah. He's, uh, he, he's, he's was born in Korea. He studied philosophy in Germany, actually lied to his parents to get to Germany, <laughs> told them that he was going to study metallurgy, <laughs> um, and they believed him. Uh-huh. Uh, and then he, he's been in Germany ever since. But um, his one of his big insights, um, and this go, kind of goes back to what I called the, the over-literalization of our society. Um, he talks about the death of the erotic, right? Which by, by that he means the death of the, the mask over things, which is how we relate to the world. Mm-hmm. And I think that Han kind of sees um, time itself as being one of those erotic masks that we need to engage with the world in a fully human way. Mm-hmm. Um, we live in a time of the instantaneous, which I equate with the literal um, mm. time. If it exists at all is segmented up, it's regimented. Uh, we don't give ourselves, we don't allow ourselves enough um, space to really meander through our own thoughts. The, um, Spanish novelist Javier Marias said in an interview, I thought was really interesting and definitely pertinent to this, that he writes the way he does these sort of long meandering sentences that seemingly about nothing because he said literature is one of the few places where you are able to give time, the time it needs to be time, which I thought was fascinating. So I think that getting, getting back to any sort of contemplative center, which I would say, which would be, um, getting back to the business of being human and thinking and feeling in the world. Um, I think it would require us to have these modes of existence that um, are sort of outside of maybe our workaday lives, which demands this other kind of interaction with time from us. Um, I think there are different um, religious practices that can mm-hmm. do that. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there are different artistic practices that can do that. Mm-hmm. And in a lot of ways they're related. Um, but I, you know, I don't know if there's any sort of like programmatic, um, yeah. Answer. <laughs> I, you know, I, I don't, I don't right. know if there is, I think it's, I think it's more of a, <clears throat> it's, it's, it's going to happen. And I don't think the culture can sustain itself forever. Um, mm-hmm. denying the most basic elements of what it means to be human. Yeah. Call call me an optimist, but I, I think we're oh, going right, to right, uh, right, I, right. I think we I think humanity is gonna, you know, find ways to be itself. Yeah. Very good. Very good. By the way, um what what sorts of reactions are you getting uh around the book? Any anything of note? Uh well I so I think there are gonna be some reviews coming up in um for sure um Liberty Law Review, for sure. The American Conservative, for sure. Uh, I think American Affairs, Claremont Review Books, New Criterion. Hmm, good. Um, so there's there's some reviews. I've 
I've been interviewed by a young writer named Anthony Barr. I don't know if you're familiar with his work. Mm-hmm. Um, he actually reviewed the book for the University Bookman website. Oh, yes. Mm-hmm. And then he interviewed me for the American Conservative, and this was months ago. Um, so, I, and, and, you know, I, I, I don't know. This is, again, like I said, like strength and weakness. Like, I don't know if there's any one particular specific crowd that my book's for. So yeah. it's, it's going to be interesting to see who finds it. <laughs> for me at least. Yeah. Yeah. I, I hope they will, <clears throat> you know, um, well, resist the usual temptations, right? Yeah, I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> because we, we know what that could be. I, I mean, it certainly um, invites a different kind of uh, read. So, so, um, although I suspect there are some other books, maybe I, I was wondering whether, you know, people like, uh, Glenn Gray, uh, sorry, John Gray or, uh, Chris Hedges or any of the other, uh, writers, uh, on this topic might've Sebastian Junger. I, I think you put him in the bibliography. In fact, uh, had an impact on your thoughts around the book. I mean, definitely all the people you listed. I mean, I yeah. think that, and, and, you know, I wouldn't, um, I wouldn't be too hard on Sebastian Younger. I mean, I read this book, uh, Tribe mm-hmm. and, and I thought, yeah, this, this is, this is mostly right. I think. Um, and, but there's so much more to say. So I think reading that book was like, it really an impetus to write my, my own book. John Gray is just fascinating. He's, yeah, you know, one of, an honest atheist, you know, like Mm -hmm, it's just mm -hmm. so interesting to think with and think against. Um, And then Chris Hedges is, is, yeah, I mean, he's he's been a big influence on me from an early age. I would say he's one of the first people I started reading after 9-11 when I really was, um, you know, poking my head out into the world for the first time. He's one of the first people I, I started reading. Yeah. Good stuff. Good stuff. <clears throat> well, great. All right. Um, well, we will be connecting again. I hope I, I love your writing. You know, I'll resist the sort of exhausting question, you know, well, what's your next book? <laughs> um, since you probably would like a little time to think about that. Unless you have something cooking. I do have something cooking. Okay. I'd love, I'd love just briefly. And so it's, okay. um, I guess the best way to describe it is it's a book about dead malls or the death of the American mall uh-huh. and the recovery of the sense of the sublime. And hopefully what it's going to be about is my own uh, <laughs> awakening religious sense or sensibility. Huh? Marvelous. Yeah. Marvelous. Well, that, that sounds tantalizing. Thank um, you. But in, in the meanwhile, thanks very much for, for sitting in here at, uh, at Dorothy's place. Um, I, th- I think you're probably aware that we were named uh, sort of indirectly in honor of Dorothy Day. Right, and yeah. our idea was that she used to have these uh, kind of uh, sessions of clarification, evenings of clarification around the kitchen table at the Catholic Worker House. And that's where they talked about, you know, Proudhon and, um, uh, you know, personalism and Dostoevsky. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> You know, and it's sort of all it's sort of all fit together somehow. That's wonderful. Thank you so much for having me. It was it was just a pleasure. So wonderful to be here. 
great, great. Scott, enjoyed it. We will uh, we'll be in touch, and uh, I'll look forward to connecting with you again. Likewise. Thanks.